This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our product should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Welcome to episode five of the Wild Common podcast. I'm Andy Barden, the host and the founder of Wild Common Agave Spirits, and today's guest is Adrian Ballinger, mountaineer, skier, business leader, and professional speaker. He's the founder of Alpenglow Expeditions, which has guided over 100 clients to the summit of Mount Everest and takes people all over the world summiting the biggest peaks on earth. I met Adrian in 2012 on Mount Everest. And then we went back again to Nepal to a mountain called Ama de Blom just a few years later and climbed once again. In this episode, I catch up with Adrian about humility, ego, partnership, and pushing it at the roof of the world. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Adrian Ballinger. So Adrian Ballinger, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, hey, I saw uh, your father, actually. I, I heard you say that your father is the guy in your life that keeps you in check the most, reminding you that you, your sister works with special needs students, can barely pay her bills, and here you are walking up hills for a living. And he hopes that that, that keeps you in perspective. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I was raised in this... Um, really strict kind of a uh, traditional family environment. My, my parents moved with me and my sister from England to the United States when I was six years old. And my sister is only 13 months older than me. So we're really close in age. And uh, basically that meant growing up that I was just a total pain in the neck to her in every way possible, as you can imagine. And, uh, and then we both chose these really separate li- life paths where she moved into into special needs teaching first in like really challenging like lockdown schools in the in the um incarceration system and then in public school she's now in san francisco and and i went this uh, wild route of you know climbing mountains uh guiding and taking other people on these big dream trips and eventually getting some sponsorship for doing my own big expeditions and my my dad i think has always been you know, really proud of me, but he's also super just rough about it. And he often doesn't think what I do is work. And he takes every opportunity to remind me of that. And there were a number of years when I, especially like when I was in my twenties and just busting my ass to try to make this work, like that, that, that was really a strain on our relationship. And then in many ways over the years, it shifted to where like I need and honor and love that perspective. And I know he's doing it for a place of love, but he's also just reminding me how good I have it. And I, I think that's great. And I think that that, um, while he maybe planted that seed early, I think it took some big failures for that to really sink in. Um, for me from, from, you know, having climbed with you and hung with you, it seemed like in 2016, you started to change. Can you, Go back to your attempt in 2016 yeah. and uh, yes. just sort of tell us like how that fell apart and maybe why that fell apart. 
Yeah. So some of your listeners might not know, you know, I've spent um, basically the last 13 years of my life every spring going to Mount Everest, the tallest peak in the world, and spending anywhere from six weeks to two and a half months uh, kind of living in a tent on the side of the mountain, climbing it. Uh, each year has had different goals. Many of them were while I was guiding other people to the summit or leading teams that were bringing people to the summit. And so for a number of years, for all those years on the mountain, I used supplemental oxygen. And in 2016, uh, together with Corey Richards, one of my teammates on Eddie Bauer, uh, I decided I wanted to try to climb without supplemental oxygen. So essentially, supplemental oxygen makes Mount Everest lower feel lower than it really is. It makes the mountain easier. It doesn't make it easy or safe, but it makes it easier. And I wanted to see if I could climb it in a more pure form. And so I went in 2016, really confident, um, super strong. It worked very hard to be ready for the trip. And uh, throughout the season was most of the time quite a bit stronger than my partner, Corey. And uh, so I went into Summit Push very confident that I would be successful. And then on Summit Day, or really the night before Summit Day, it all fell apart. The wheels came off. I was much slower than Corey. I made a series of bad decisions trying to keep up with him, which I think my ego was really wrapped up in that a lot, like not being willing to be slower than my teammate. That's never been my role. I've always been the strongest person in the mountains when I go climbing. Um, and, uh, and in the end, I kind of like bonked or, you know, lost all my energy at about 28 and a half thousand feet, only a few hours from the summit of Everest, but also really in danger of getting myself killed. And, uh, I came back down and Corey went on to summit that day. So really there was no, there was nowhere for me to hide. There was no excuse. There was no, oh, the weather was too bad for me to summit or, the snow conditions were too dangerous. The avalanche danger was too high. All these stories that might be easy to tell to myself and others. It, there was just a stark reality. Like Corey was strong enough and I wasn't mentally and physically. And uh, that took a lot of working through. That was kind of 2016. And that, that working through part being uh, internally, the stories that you tell yourself and, and you battling with your own ego about maybe why he exceeded or succeeded versus um, why you failed. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. Like even coming down, it was kind of like, I started with kind of the classic, the truth was like the, the symptom, the thing that actually turned me around was I got so cold that I knew I was going to get frostbite if I continued. So my hands had been numbed back behind my wrists. I could no longer utilize uh, devices on the rope that would normally keep you safe, like a Jumar or belay device. So I was just soloing up here at 28,500 feet because my hands were too numb. And so that, that was the first story I'd say I, I sort of like put out there, like, too cold, going to get frostbite, going to get myself killed. And everyone started complimenting me. Like you made such a safe decision. You made such a responsible decision. You, you're turning around is what enables your partner to keep going. And all those things might be true, but they kind of allowed me to, at the start to just cover up, I think what the deeper issues were. And it was only after coming home for a couple of months and actually being with Emily Harrington, my girlfriend, who's also a pro athlete, a, a professional rock climber. And I think one of the things her friend's, and family and I really respect in her is kind of her brutal honesty about her own performance and about things going on around her and successes and failures. And so she really challenged me after I came home to like, 
look deeper and try to figure out why it actually happened. And, and, and as I took time away from climbing and, and time away from thinking if I'd ever go back to Everest to try again, like I started working through this process of why I, I blew up up there. And it started to make sense to me that like I had failed to ask for help from everyone from coaches to nutritionists. I just tried to climb the mountain. Like I always climbed the mountain and I always wanted to be the strongest. So I was still the first one showing up in every camp and putting up the tent and melting the water and doing all these things that I always thought I had to do to show everyone I was stronger. And then on the day going to the highest camp at 27,000 feet, when Corey, who has this innate, beautiful ability to suffer, that's maybe stronger than anyone else I know, and he started moving faster than me, I refused to let him go. And I stayed on his heels and came all the way into camp four at his pace, even though that turned out not to be my natural pace. But what that meant is I had like, you know, the whole won the battle, lost the war. Like I'd won the battle to keep up with Corey. So my ego was intact in camp four, but I'd lost the war because I had no energy left the next day for, uh, you know, 40 hour round trip summit push. It would have actually taken me on top, but it took months and a lot of coaching from them to kind of like work through those things and get kind of honest with myself. And I think that's what opened up the door to me returning to putting another year into this project and to asking for a lot of help from the people around me if I had the time necessary to to get stronger. And what, what do you think was pivotal in sort of recognizing that you were lying to yourself and that um, you were sort of covering up your own fragility of ego, I suppose, uh, to protect your reputation or, uh, you know, to sound good for your sponsors. I mean, what, what was it that knocked that barrier down that allowed you to see clearly like, Hey, I messed up and this is on me and I take ownership of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it was two things. I think one was my desire to succeed at this goal of climbing Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen. It was kind of the culmination of a, 30 year career in many ways or passion from when I started rock climbing at, you know, age 11 or 12 uh, and, and hiking big mountains in the white mountains in New Hampshire, all the way to, you know, these Everest years that we're talking about in my early forties. And so like, I think that passion was a big part of it, that this goal was worth pushing past those barriers, breaking down those kind of like walls that kept me safe and being willing to look deeper and being willing to show weakness in front of people. So I think that desire was a big part of it. And then I think just having this unending love and support from someone I care so deeply for Emily, um, you know, really, really gave me the confidence to do that as well. Knowing like she was with me, no matter what I kind of like found in there. (laughs) And, uh, and I think that was really crucial. Meaning she would stand by your side knowing that you had to admit it to yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And ego is a part of climbing mountains, though. It it has to be to create a drive, right? Like, so where's the balance there? I mean, were you, were you jealous of Corey's success? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great point and, and question. Like I do think it's really Ego is very important in what we do in the big mountains. And I think, you know, people joke about, um, you know, maybe you've heard this joke before, but what's the difference between God and a mountain guide? And uh, the answer is 
God doesn't think he's a mountain guide. Um, because, or God uh, doesn't tell you he's a mountain guide. <laughs> right. You know, the, we are being asked to make these really difficult decisions uh, with a lot riding on them, including sometimes, you know, life and death without being too, you know, dramatic. And we never have all the information we need. And we need our clients and our teammates to be trusting us with these really difficult decisions. And so I, I think ego is a part of what allows us to like stand there with confidence and be like, I know the right answer. We should turn around now, or I know the right answer. We should keep going now. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, so there's that side of ego that I think is very important. Um, but then there's kind of, yeah, I think there's the dark side of ego that was blocking me from actually doing what I needed to do on Mount Everest without oxygen to be successful. And uh, sure, I I was jealous of Corey. Absolutely. Like I, I've worked, you know, and Corey and I have both, you know, dedicated a lot of our lives to kind of elite athleticism in the big mountains. But, you know, I, selfishly or my the ego side of me is like, I put 12 years into that mountain. I knew everything about it up and down and around. And I had, you know, Corey's got this incredible photography talent um, that you know very well, this creative side. For me, it's like, mountains are it. This is what I do. And so when he, when I was so much stronger and thought maybe I'd worked harder to get there in 2016, but then he turned out to be the far more capable one above 26,000 feet, above 8,000 meters, for sure, I was jealous. But then, um, but then and, it also sounds like both that. your climbing partner and your life partner were by your side and gave you the support once you were able to admit to yourself that you had to tell the truth and be honest with, with yourself yeah, about, exactly right. about the process that they would be there the next year if you wanted to try again. Exactly right. And I think that's part of the, like, the beauty of it. I've, I've already talked you know, about Emily and then you know, Corey Richards summited the mountain without supplemental oxygen in really good style in 2016 when I failed. And yet, you know, by the time we were back down, you know, 10 days later doing all these interviews in New York City because our climb because of social media had gotten a lot of attention. Um, you know, within 10 days of getting home, he's like, Adrian, I am there next year. I will do it again to make sure you have a partner to try this with, which like, no one climbs Mount Everest without oxygen twice. And in the end, Corey didn't, right? He ended up putting on oxygen and supporting me in an even more selfless way, way in some ways. But like it, it, the idea that he was willing to go back and do it again, the exact same route, the exact same mountain, the exact same style just shows his, like, I think love and how important friendship is to him and, and uh, his selflessness in that. And it, it meant the world. And so he attempts this uh, climb again with you a second time, back to back, yeah. 2017, <laughs> um, after 2016 success, and he starts to bonk up high. And, and what I hear you saying is he put an oxygen up high to help you succeed? Yeah, it was one of the, I mean, a, a moment in my life that I'll never forget. And, and first of all, like I should say, like, I think Corey was totally capable of climbing the mountain a second time without supplemental oxygen. Even that season, that day, he worked really hard for it. But I think what's hard to kind of explain is like the, the pain of climbing above like 8,500 meters, above 28,000 feet without oxygen is, in, the pain is impossible to describe. 
And so if you've done it once already, I, I don't know how you get through it. It's, it, it, it's hard. To just, it's really hard. It's just like every cell in your body, every cell in your muscles is screaming at you to not take another step. And you need to somehow overcome that and take another step. And you need to do that thousands and thousands of times over hours and hours on summit push day. And so like Corey stopped, Corey ultimately deciding that second time. Like, I, I don't know how you gain the mindset to, to do that a second time on the same route. So it made sense that he turned around at like 28.5 without oxygen. He actually started going back down the mountain. And I think he was really crushed not to be with me because we started this project with the idea of standing on the mountain together never mind the whole oxygen thing. And in 2016, I failed. And then in 2017, he turned around. But the wild thing was, as he was heading down, my guide company, Alpenglow Expeditions, was also guiding clients to the summit that day. And one of the guides had an extra mask and an extra bottle of oxygen that they weren't using. And they passed, Corey passed them as he was going down, leaving me up high on the mountain. And uh, they offered it to him. And he took it. He didn't even have a backpack. So he ended up tying the bottle of oxygen onto his back, putting the mask on, and then running back up the hill with oxygen now to catch me and be with me for the last few hours to the summit. And I just have this unbelievable memory of Corey. Like, it looked like running to me because I wasn't on oxygen. He was actually just walking fast. But coming back up the ridge, this guy in a blue Smurf suit. And it was Corey. And he just, you know, showed up and fist bumped and pelvic rusted and gave me a hug and he's like we are doing this together we're going to the top and then for like the next however many hours it was where we only went like 250 vertical feet to the summit he was just with me every step barely moving and uh yeah it's one of the best memories of my life and that's a true partnership absolutely it it like it, it i feel like cliche is saying it, but it was like this beautiful thing, right? This love and partnership that is what mountain climbing is meant to represent, but I think sometimes gets so lost and it was right there. But mountain climbing is also a game of one-upmanship, right? I mean, it's uh, competition is a thing. You're doing new routes. You're pushing it faster, better, further, stronger. You're going deeper. I mean, uh, were it not for competition, the I hate to call it a sport, but... Um, Mountaineering wouldn't be where it is today, right? Yeah, I think that's true. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think uh, inspiration from what others achieve and then wanting to like prove we can do that or even one thing better, uh, I think has pushed generations of athletes in all sports. And, and I think that's a completely reasonable thing within climbing as long as we're aware of the risks we're taking and why we're doing these things. I, I do think that as our sport becomes more and more mainstream, I do think there is a risk there of us starting to, you know, take on greater and greater risks for the wrong reasons, um, whether that's sponsorship or notoriety, um, fame, whatever you want to call it, fame in our little small fish pond. But uh, so I do think we have to be careful with that one-upmanship. Um, but, but I, I, I do think it drives us as well and that's okay. Because of some of the motivations have become externally driven, whether it's fame or accolades or recognition of, you know, uh, success, whereas yeah. someone ends up dead. That's, 
that is the risk, right? That is the risk. And then, like I just recently, I I've been, I've been telling this story quite a bit. I I was lucky enough to summit K two without supplemental oxygen last year, kind of a next step from Everest. And uh, you know, as a as uh, I'm super proud of it and so glad it worked out the way it did. But there's this one section on the mountain that is really randomly dangerous that kills a lot of people, not based on talent or skill or experience or judgment, but just because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I spent about six hours in that part of the mountain. It's called the bottleneck. Uh, I spent about six hours because without oxygen, I was moving so slowly. It's at 28,000 feet. And the way I describe it is like, I could not get out of my head the idea that like I got myself killed there and then was sitting on the little puffy cloud looking down at the things I left behind, my sister, my nephew, my dad, Emily, my dog, Kat, this, the fact that Alpenglow Expeditions was really finally hitting its stride, the fact that we had just bought a new house, all these things, and sitting on that little puffy cloud looking down, I'm not sure I could have justified my decision to go there and do that. And that's a shift for me. And it's something that like is causing me to kind of want to take a big pause and make sure before I go to another big mountain project, especially without oxygen, um, that I'm pretty clear about my reasons and that the risk feels worthwhile. And I think risk has become uh, a hot topic as, as you know, Free Solo was released and did so well. And y- you can find varying opinions on that, but um how do you foresee your risk tolerance changing now that you've had that experience? You know, I, you know, I've now had probably six months or so since K2. And so I've had, I've had a little distance from it. And I, I think what I'm coming to is like, I'm not ready to let go of those experiences that have real random risk that could get me killed in the mountains. They, they still uh, drive me so much and, fulfill me so much. I think what's changing is that I'm not having them as often and that I really need time to be certain that this, whatever this project is, feels right. And then I'm confident that it's worth it again. And so, and I, I, I think that's, at least for me, like that's a, that's a fair place to be in because the random risk stuff that I'm kind of talking about and really feeling like, all of us in this community have lost so many people and many times is to this random risk, not so much just poor decision-making. And uh, so the number of times you put yourself in that random risk is a factor, right? It's kind of the the Russian roulette model. Um, And so, you know, I, I think that's where I kind of landed is I'm not ready to give these things up, but I don't need to be doing them every month day in, day out in different countries around the world. I can, I can be more selective. Did the loss of Yuli Steck on Everest shake you? It did shake me. I, I wasn't friends with Uli. I wasn't close, but I had met him in places like the, you know, the coffee shop in Namche Bazaar in, uh, in Nepal and, you know, we had shared a trail for a couple hours together, kind of trekking into base camp, things like that. And, and his, his dying, like, I think it was, I don't think it surprised anyone, including me, because he was pushing at such a high level with his soloing in big mountains that have a lot of random risk. 
Uh, but at the same time, it definitely like just hurt because he was someone I felt like made smart decisions and trained mentally and physically to be at the absolute highest level of any mountain athlete. And so it, it, it is that he is one of many of a constant reminder that if he can get it killed in the mountain, any of us can get killed in the mountain. And I've sort of been reflecting as my risk tolerance has changed over the years. I've had a number of close calls um, and or near death experiences. Um, I've started to slow down and reflect on like lessons learned in the mountain and bring them back. Um, is that something you've started to do to start to just sort of slow down a little bit more in between these big expeditions you do? Yeah, I, I think so. And certainly in terms of, like I said, how often I'm willing to go out and do this, like my life doesn't feel any slower today. <laughs> Alpenglow is busier than ever. I do more public speaking than ever. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have great sponsors, which means I, I do get to go on a lot of expeditions and trips each year. Um, and I'm still trying to guide some because I'm just passionate about helping other people to reach these like big moments of their life by summiting mountains. So life doesn't feel slower, but certainly I feel like I'm becoming more reflective on what we do and the sacrifices it requires. And this coming back to this question, like me and Emily, because we both do this and because she takes big risks as well, she took this big fall and this past season that really rocked us. Um, and so I think we spend a lot more time talking about risk and whether it's worth it and why it's worth it and how to manage it. So it's always there. I, I hope I'm gaining wisdom through that process. I, I think feet. from, you know, I think from the outside coming, at least when we climbed in, you know, 2013, 2014, and then went back, uh, well, I guess 2012 on Everest and then, was it 2014 yeah. on Ama de Blom? Um, yeah. I watched you recently open up um, a couple months ago and show a true moment of humility to the point that I like toasted my glass and was like, way to go, Ballinger. And you spoke up um, to congratulate Jim Morrison and Hillary O'Neill on their first ski descent of the fourth, the fourth tallest peak in the world. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Sure. So the fourth tallest peak in the world is a peak called Lhotse. Um, it sits right next to Everest. In fact, when you climb Everest from the south side, from the Nepali side, you actually climb up Lhotse all the way to Camp 3. And then the two routes kind of diverge. You go left to go to Everest and you go right to finish on Lhotse. And uh, it's it's a famous peak for lots of reasons. I, I climbed it back in 2011 I summited it and it's normal easiest route on the mountain goes from about from about 25,000 feet where the route separates with Everest it goes straight up this unreal 40-ish degree couloir just super narrow elevator shaft as narrow as one ski width in places as wide as maybe five ski widths in places and it drops thousands of feet this elevator shaft couloir right off the summit of the mountain and anyone who spent time on Everest or an Everest base camp looks at this cool water. And if you're a skier, it's the dream line, it's the King line. Um, and I've been lucky enough because I spent so much time 
in the Himalayan on 8,000 meter peaks, and I've been a passionate skier since I was really young, that I've gotten to go and try and ski uh, a number of different 8,000 meter peaks. Uh, so um, successfully skied the eighth tallest peak in the world, Manaslu, the sixth tallest peak in the world, Choyu. And I tried Lhotse back in 2013 unsuccessfully because the cool wall was all ice. Then went on with Jim Morrison, Hillary O'Neill, Hil- sorry, Hillary Nelson, and uh, Emily Harrington to try Makalu, the fifth tallest peak in the world. And we failed on Makalu. And when we did fail on it, one of the ways we kind of like made ourselves feel okay with failing was, well, a year or two from now, we're all going to go back and try Lhotse because it's the king line. Why try any other peak? This is the dream line. And uh, so we planned an expedition together uh, a couple of years ago to try to ski Lhotse, the fourth tallest mountain in the world. And we made a decision that basically no other skier, many skiers have tried this line, but they all tried in the spring, the main climbing season on Everest, because it's easier logistically. And what we decided was we would try to ski the line in the autumn, post-monsoon season, when there's much, much more snow on the line. And hopefully what happened to me in 2013, where the line was all ice, wouldn't be the case, even though we'd have more avalanche danger. We planned this trip, you know, so we've been talking about it for basically two years since Makalu. Uh, we, we were planning it nonstop, all training as hard as we could together. And something like three or four weeks before the trip left, our funding fell through due to, uh, you know, sort of the business side of big mountain climbing. So sponsor issues and sponsor conflicts that didn't allow us to go together. And if I remained on the team, essentially no one would get to go. And so I dropped out of the team uh, and Emily decided to, to sort of back out as well, since we're really a partnership and we only wanted to go together. And uh, Hillary and Jim were still able to go. We sort of resolved our sponsor challenges by me leaving the team. And it was heartbreaking. Um, and it took me a long time to kind of get over and Hillary and Jim are two of my closest friends, but, uh, watching them get there and they worked so hard and they did so many things right when they could have done them wrong. So they deserve full credit for it. With that said, it was also probably the one in two decade season when all the conditions were just perfect and to not be there and to not have that opportunity really, really hurt. It challenged our friendships and, uh, um, you know, it's the business side of mountains that I think a lot of people don't think about. But, you know, it, so it took me some time. But Jim and Hillary have remained two of my closest friends, and I love them, and I'm so proud of them for what they pulled off and uh, how much passion they poured into it. And, you know, no matter, nothing stopped them. There were so many things on that trip, including uh, our financial challenges that could have caused them to, to fail, to back out. Um, or to turn around on the mountain and they never did. And I think it's one of the biggest things done in the mountains in my generation. Um, so I, I love it, but, um, yeah, you can imagine it was, it was, it was a tough pill at the time not to be there. And that's, you know, like getting back to what your father said and and some of this humility you've learned, that's been a shift. And that's what I was referencing where I was like, he took the time to straight up you admit all of this in your little uh, quotation. You say, hey, I've had a hard time saying this. It's taken me months, but I want to give full respect, full shout out. Um, And that seemed like that was the true moment of humility from you to to be able to really acknowledge and praise them 
regardless of all those external circumstances and, and the challenges of sort of swallowing that, uh, that pride. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I'm so, uh, it, it was amazing the the weight that came off of me when I, when I kind of put that out there to the world, when, when I finally like owned that. And, and I think that's a good thing for me to remember and other people to remember, like, like it, it, it you know, like have, I guess having that humility, which is what you see in it, like being willing to praise others, even when, when like, we very personally feel tied to that or it hurts our ego. Like it, it, it felt so right once I did it. And, and like, yeah, we're all, we're all, <laughs> we're all just going from A to B in this world and trying to be good to the people around, hopefully trying to be good to the people around us. And I think like recognizing that, yeah, all I am doing is walking up hills for a living. All I am doing is, is, going out playing in the mountains and remembering that, then the most important thing is like caring for and loving the people around me who are important to me and giving those guys kudos for something they did so well uh, is part of that showing that care and love. And, and it, it ends up, it, it ends up feeling good for me too. It's the right thing. And another part of that comes from the guiding work you do of, or at least another reward rather, uh, which is empowering other people because you're able to see that they're capable of more than they believe. And then you watch them break through those mental barriers and attain something that, you know, they never thought possible. Then they go back to their own communities more empowered. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I feel so lucky that the way my career or life kind of came together is that I have this guiding side as well as this personal climbing side because the guiding side does feel a little bit less selfish. And yet I get so much joy and energy watching someone else that I'm supporting push through a boundary that they didn't think they could get through and succeed at a big goal. And I've had that experience on everything from Everest to like a day of backcountry skiing in Tahoe when I've been out guiding people and like it never gets old. It, uh, it feels so good. And I certainly do hope and believe that some of that accomplishment feeling that people have in the mountains, they do bring back to their, to their daily lives, their work and their home lives. And, and, and I believe, I believe it can have a positive effect. And so high altitude mountaineering in particular, I mean, you're signing up for uh, more than a marathon. This is like a full on endurance sort of component to, to the sport that we're doing. Um, and you talked about not being able to sprint to the finish line. You know, how do you mentally prepare people for that uh, as we're now in this, this coronavirus thing? Um, we don't know how long it's going to take. It's painful for many people. I mean, pulling lessons out of sort of what you've learned and, or what you teach. Um, how do you prepare people for these, these huge events, these long marathons that are sometimes, um, a couple months long? Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, suffering or joy of suffering or love of suffering or endurance of suffering. Like, um, I, I think it is just about like anything else. Like we build it through prior experiences whether we choose them or not, we, we learn our endurance to suffering. 
And hopefully it starts with smaller suffering experiences and builds to bigger, whether that's a shorter mountain trip, or maybe you run a marathon before you do a mountain trip, or maybe you run a five miler before you run a 26 miler. Like we build up our, our, our tolerance to suffering. And some of us, I think, find that we actually kind of like love and thrive in it. But, you know, a lot of the, a lot of those suffering experiences in our lives are also things that we don't, I think, choose or plan for. They're when mistakes happen, you know, so some of my best suffering stories in the mountains are when, you know, like I screw up and I end up whatever it is, let's say spending a night out in negative 20 degrees temps on the side of a 20,000 foot, you know, mountain on a rock, uh, on a rock wall. And like you survive that and, and you learn a lot about yourself and what you can tolerate physically and emotionally. And like, so it, you know, I hope there's a silver lining to what we're in now that we, we are all going to suffer through something and we're going to suffer through it together. And I think we are going to take a lot of learnings out of what we are actually capable of enduring. Um, so I, I hope that's a, a silver lining for, for some of us um, as we come out of coronavirus world life. Um, and in terms of how to endure it, you know, like uh, I, I've had so many mentors along the way, but actually Corey, who we've talked a lot about today, he's just got this little saying that he says to himself, this too shall pass. And it's so simple and it's so right on. Like the way I get through like true, deep, painful suffering in the mountains is I think about the tropical beach trip I'm going to take with Emily after it. And like, I think some people tell us like, no, like you have to, you have to love the moment. You have to be in the moment. It's like, no, you don't. You, it's okay to to think about the light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, there will be the light. There will be light at the end of, of this, of this journey as well. And so what was it like as, as uh, seeing your partner, your, you know, woman that you love become injured? Um, can you talk about, about this fall that you referenced earlier what, when you were climbing with Emily? Yeah, sure. So Emily Harrington, like I said, my girlfriend, we uh, we met in 2012. You were actually there, Andy, uh, on Mount Everest. But uh, Emily's a, a professional rock climber, and um, she, over the past few years, she's put a lot of her focus into climbing on El Capitan in Yosemite, uh, this 3,200-foot wall, uh, what we call a big wall, granite climbing. Really, the easiest route on the wall is uh, I think 513A, uh, the routes tend to be 30 to 40 rope lengths or pitches long. And she does what's called free climbing. So we're still using a rope. It's not quite Alex Honnold style. Uh, she uses a rope, but all upward movement is only using her hands and her feet. The rope can only catch her if she falls. And if she falls, then she hasn't climbed that pitch cleanly. And she has to rappel or lower back down to the beginning of that pitch, climb it again until she climbs it without falling and then can continue to the next pitch. And she's had some real success on the wall, but her, the goal she's been working on for the last couple of years is trying to climb L cap free in a day. And she wants to do it on this really hard route called golden gate, which is 513 B. So in 24 hours, she has to climb every pitch bottom to top of this 3000 foot wall, um, without falling on any of those pitches and uh it's a massive undertaking and one of the things you have to do in order to be successful in 24 hours is move really fast on the easier climbing for climbers out there you know the 510 and 511 climbing she wants to do very fast so then she can have more time 
for the 512 and 513 pitches, the really, really difficult ones that only a few people on this planet can climb. And in order to, to move faster on the easier terrain, you do certain things to go faster, but that also means reducing your safety on those pitches. And so Emily, on her last try of this season, uh, she was climbing with Alex Honnold, but with a rope, Alex was belaying her and climbing behind her while she led every pitch. Uh, Emily fell in 27 degree temperatures off the very first pitch of the route and took probably a 45 or 50 foot fall and landed on a ledge. Um, and it, it looked like a really bad fall. She was having neck and lower back pain. Um, she had a big kind of head injury from hitting her head without a helmet on. Um, there was plenty of blood and all that good stuff. And, uh, so that's, that's kind of what happened. It was super intense. The, the good news is after a rescue off the wall and then a trip to the Fresno Trauma 1 unit and then 10 really scary hours in the hospital, she was actually released with no major injuries um, and no head, neck, or back injuries. But those 8 or 10 hours of unknown um, during the rescue, the ambulance ride, and then the initial hours in the hospital were um, it was super intense. And so, so bring us into this, like, now – a week out or whatever it may be, um, bring us into your living room when, when you're having conversations, not just reflecting on what went wrong, but you said that she was talking a lot about risk and that made you really think differently. Can you just discuss that a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, you know, after, do you mean, do you mean before or after Emily? No, no afterwards. So, I mean, the two after, of you yeah. then have time to process um, what she's doing and the risks and, and if they're worthwhile and, you know, what, what do those conversations look like between two professional climbers? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, well, first of all, I mean, I think it was, it was the first time I've been on the other end of the phone call or, or the accident of like my partner. Right. Um, so I was actually hiking around at the top of El Cap to, uh, to rappel in and meet Alex and Emily halfway up the wall and then climb the upper half of the wall with them supporting Emily. And, um, so I actually wasn't with her when she fell. And so getting that text message and then phone call on my cell phone and, you know, racing back to the base, it was super intense for me in a very different way for me to think about what we do and the, the, the pain and suffering it could leave on the people around us instead of just on the person doing the activity. Because at that stage, you don't, so, you didn't know that uh, her neck wasn't broken or something. Right. And and we've no, I mean, basically the first texts were basically like, "M fell, she hit a ledge, it's bad." And then like, you know, a few more texts as I was racing back to the base, you know, suggesting that there might be head neck back issues. And we both have so, friends who are either currently in wheelchairs or have not survived falls like this. So that must have been a really heavy time going through your mind. It was, it was a really heavy time. And, you know, once I got to the base, I was able to go into full, like, guide robot, Adrian robot mode and just, like, try to help the situation, be a rescuer, essentially. But during the hike down and the drive back to the base, that was the time I had to kind of, like, think, like, that my life might just completely have changed in a way I never really planned for, even though we talked about. And so... That's what I think, you know, in the weeks afterwards, we actually, after I recovered a bit, we actually went to Ecuador and spent a few weeks uh, doing a little climbing, doing a little surfing, um, but also just reflecting a lot. And, you know, I think 
our biggest reflection or my biggest reflection was just on the reality that this does go both ways. Um, I've always kind of assumed I'd be the one to get myself killed and leave other people behind. But Emily's style of rock climbing is actually high risk. And I, I think people maybe don't always realize that. But I mean, just in the past three or four months, we've lost two good friends in big wall rock climbing accidents, Nolan Smythe and, and Brad Goldbright. And um, this style of climbing kind of requires uh, a reduction in the safety system in order to move quickly even though neither of those accidents was specifically due to uh, speed climbing or trying to do a big objective in 24 hours, big walls have a lot of risk. And I think we often forget that. And so like we've, you know, this, this just allowed us or forced us to really take that time to talk about the risk profiles of both of our activities, if, and when it's worth it, how we feel about, if the other person in a relationship isn't comfortable, doesn't feel like it's the right time, even though one person does. And I don't think we have any magic answers. We've just agreed to be super honest about it and continue talking about it. And we both need to buy into any big risky endeavor, even if only one of us is out there doing it. And that's kind of the agreement we've come to, but like, Looking at next year, like I desperately want M to have the opportunity to go back and try Golden Gate in a day again. Like the 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 learning she's had through this experience, I think, is making her stronger and smarter and better. And she's working harder than she ever has before. And and I believe she needs it and wants it for her soul and for the right reason. So I'm going to be there to support it. And in the process, it sounds like you're also learning and and having some takeaways and reassessing your own path. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's always been easy to say, like, I know how much these accidents hurt the people we leave behind, but then fully being in that situation and getting lucky essentially that M's life and my life wasn't permanently changed from her accident. Like being in it is different than just talking about it. And having the potential of losing or having a permanently broken life partner is different than a friend or a parent or a sibling. And, um, I really, really felt that. Well, and she also calls you bullshit and, and is forcing <laughs> every, you to tell every the truth. Day she's, she's listening to this call. So when we get, when we get off it, I'm sure she's going to call my bullshit right now. <laughs> but she's, she's also forcing you to confront your own reality and your own ego and your own motivations. And I think that that is a beautiful part of, you know, a partnership is being able to be honest. And, and while it may hurt a little bit to hear it from your partner, you listen. Yep. Every, every, every dawn day, I think, Every day, I think it's a, a really good thing, and I'm really super lucky to have it, and it just makes me feel like even stronger in, in our relationship. It's not just all the fun stuff. It's not just all the good stuff. It's not just that we get to go out climbing and skiing together. It's, it's this level of like honesty and accountability um, makes, makes my life better. Well, I know that the two of you have started uh, your own reality TV show. <laughs> Danger, what is it? Danger Mouse or Stick Mouse? Oh, Stick you can't Bug call it that. Mouse. Yeah, so, 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 so we have a YouTube channel where we put up uh, episodes every two weeks. They're short. They're very bingeable. 
uh, especially right now if you're at home. And how can people uh, find that? They, they're, they're called Danger Stick TV, and Stick is S-T-I-K. Um, Danger Stick TV, and the reason for the name is uh, M's nickname is Danger Mouse, and my nickname is Stickbug. We kind of named each other that in that first summer in the Sierra back in uh, 2012. And so we, uh, they've stuck. Those are our nicknames. So Dangerous Tick TV on YouTube. And then what about Insta? Where can people find you on uh, Instagram? Your name at Adrian yeah, Bellinger? Instagram. Exactly. Really easy. All right. Well, hopefully uh, one of these days we can get the two of you on the show together. It sounds like that'd be fun. That'd be so fun. It's more fun. I hope we can all play again in the mountains together or, or maybe in the waves. You might have heard we're like becoming really, really bad Gumby surfers, but we're really passionate about it. So we need a coach. It's maybe. the hardest sport, but man, oh man, is it the best? <laughs> well, yeah, fingers crossed. In the meantime, uh, hold fast and this too shall pass in, in the marathon that we're all enduring now. And uh, thanks for taking about 40 minutes to talk. Thanks. It's great to chat with you. And uh, yeah, see you soon. You too, brother. Take care. All right. Thanks, Andy. 